Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Elevating Voices in Leadership podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Asia Ghazi. I am one of the co-hosts um, with uh, our lovely co-host here today, Dr. Gabriela Miramontes, Dr. Maria Brame, and Suellen Schneider. Am I saying your name right? Because I feel like I don't pronounce your last name correctly, Suellen. That's okay. It's actually Schneider, but it's okay. (laughs) Schneider. I have to think about Schneider and then Schneider. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking to two of our co-hosts who actually had a trip to Dubai just um, about uh, the last two weeks, right? It was like two weeks ago, you all went to Dubai and um, they're going to talk, Dr. Gabriela Miramontes and Swellen are both going to be talking about their experiences in Dubai today. So Let's go ahead and listen in. Thank you so much for being open to talk about your experiences. I would love for um, for you to talk about, I guess, like maybe the first day, like how, how did you experience the first day of Dubai? Well, um, I guess we should start with why we were even there. Yeah. Um, so Pepperdine University hosts, or the Graduate School of Education and Psychology, through its doctoral programs has an international component given that we do have um, a global leadership program and our EDD programs are really um, meant to encapsulate uh, leadership in in practice. And so with the way our world is heading, uh, we try to integrate this idea of globalization or at the very least cultural awareness in all of our programs. So once a year, faculty take a delegation of students to um, an international location. Um, This year it was uh, the United Arab Emirates, primarily Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Um, There's a delegation in Egypt currently. There's a delegation heading to Belize. And then there's another delegation heading to Costa Rica here in the next few weeks. Um, The goal really is to, um, well, it's a multifaceted goal, but basically we're looking at um, the areas we visit through a series of lenses, whether it's cultural, um, and Suellen, please remind me because I don't, I know I don't always speak to all of them. There are six, um, cultural, economic, political, educational, and I don't remember the last two. Uh, the um, privilege of wealthy, privilege of the uh, people, educational, mm-hmm. and um, historical is with the culture. Yeah. So in and, and historical, is, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the intent really is to expose students um, to a contrast, since our programs are steeped in Western leadership ideals. Um, this isn't a vacation, you know, it's not meant to be comfortable, it's not meant to be convenient, um, it really is meant to expose our students to a plethora of experiences, um, and, and the experiences tend to fall in three categories, so they tend to fall into the cultural, the economic, or the historical, um, and uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's obvious, it might not be, um, and Suellen can speak to this a little bit more, but um, we tend to, we don't, it's not a vacation, it's not meant to be immersive, 
in that you go to one place, you spend the entire day there. It's more about looking at these economic spaces, these historical spaces. So as far as Dubai was concerned, um, there we went to some of the historical spaces like the spice market or markets and um, some of their um, economic centers. And then we went to some of their cultural areas. Um, one, obviously to see um, and engage in, but for example, when we went, we went to the um, Dubai frame, it had a, a museum um, as you go through it. Um, we went to the palace in Abu Dhabi um, to kind of get a sense as to what the inside of a palace in, in the United Arab Emirates might look like. Um, and we had lunch there and that was interesting. Um, our tour guides were also explicitly told um, to share about their countries um, as we took the buses from place to place. Um, so, and, and Swell, and please jump in at any point in time. So as we went through these spaces, um, the tour guides were also sharing their experiences, their perspectives about the country we were visiting. Um, so our tour, we were in two different buses. Our tour guide, um, as we were going through the freeway or what we would call a freeway, I think they called it a freeway too. Um, they, they shared about the development that was going on. And there's a lot of construction, a lot of construction going on in Dubai. And so they were sharing what that construction meant. And, you know, there was just a lot of different um, experiences. You had the touristy things. Um, we got to eat in very interesting locations, um, but you also got to hear about the growth of the country through the eyes of locals, if you will. So that's kind of just background as to why we were there um, and what the experience was. Yeah, and uh, I think I can, I can add to, to what Dr. Gambis said from um, my student lens, <laughs> because I went there uh, as a student and as a student, I was, I kind of shaped my mind to, okay, how can I live this experience from a learner perspective? And there is, for me, two components of it. One of them was the engagement with my colleagues from even different cohorts and also faculty members that I didn't know before. Uh, this trip. Uh, so this first uh, uh, component for me was uh, kind of building community as well, even though we were in a strange place for all of us. And the second was to leave this new culture, um, which is very impressive because um, UAE is, is a very special country because First, we know that the culture is completely different, even though they uh, shaped the country to be welcoming to Westerns and to other culture, even in, in, in Middle East, such as, I don't know if you know that, but they have only 10 million uh, people. And from that, almost 30% are Indian. So, uh, and we know that there we have not only Muslims, but we have uh, Hindus and we have a different kind of cultures living together in this place. So uh, this is amazing. 
Another thing that um, caught my attention when I think about um, Dubai and the United Arab Emirates is uh, we have this impression when we are in the in the Western uh, countries, we have this impression when we don't know those countries that they might be very restrictive or, you know, but um, when you go to Dubai or uh, Abu Dhabi, one thing that caught my attention was their, uh, the, the details they pay attention to to welcome uh, foreigners, for example, every store you have the Arabic and the English. And I learned after that that it, it was a legislation, they did that. It is not the same in Tokyo, for example. <laughs> you can get lost if you don't know because people, uh, they don't speak, um, a lot of people, they don't speak other language than Japanese. And this is not the same there. They are introduced to English very earlier in their education, which is amazing because it shows how much they value receiving others. Um, so this other uh, side of, you know, um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and the, the country as a whole is something very interesting to analyze. And I think that it's a particularity of this country. Um, other countries in Middle East, they, they might not be so open as United Emirates is, uh, Arab, United Arab Emirates is. Uh, what else? Oh, Dr. Gabbis said something very important here because one important thing about their culture is trade, right? Um, and we went in our first, I think it was the first day, we went to the spice market. And just to give you an example how different it is and how we can learn a lot, we went to the spice market and in their culture, if you study a little bit about their culture in a lot of other countries in Middle East, they negotiate. They have this uh, culture of negotiating. And it was funny because uh, a lot of students, they bought, they bought the stuff paying the full price without, you know, negotiating. And we were in this group with the three people and we were buying some scarves and the guy said, oh, the price is 108 dihan each scarf. And I said, oh no, it's too, you know, uh, the price is too high. Uh, I can pay 110. And then we started this process of negotiation, negotiating and we end up in 130, something like that. So we three, we all saved 50 <laughs> in that experience. And some people were amazed about this experience because it is fun. It is really fun <laughs> when we expose ourselves. And it is an opportunity to learn something different that we don't have this opportunity here in the US, for example. And in a lot of countries, you, we just don't have this opportunity to try to negotiate in a small scale. We tend to negotiate here or in other you know, places in, in, in big scale, like, okay, I'm buying a lot of lands, business, etc. then we negotiate more. But on a regular basis, we don't do that. Um, and it was funny because after those experiences and people start to learn, 
some of the students will have this conversation after they had an experience, they had this opportunity to have this experience to negotiate afterwards with other staff. So in this particular example, we learn how to negotiate in, in different contexts, as you know. So it is part of their culture, but it can be added to our lives. What, what did I take from that? Okay, can I negotiate in my daily basis for my wages or for my job or anything else? So something that we can learn from other culture that we can use and apply in our um, living country to you know, maybe um, have a better situation in our own lives. Dr. Gabby, if you want to just add to that. You know, can I ask a question? Um... That interests me. Um, so, so I'll be traveling to to Sweden in a few weeks, um, and um, I always um, check. I've traveled frequently to Sweden every few years since um, I'm, I immigrated from there. And every every summer when we travel, we've always checked the, the exchange rate. And um, this particular year, the exchange rate is the dollar is stronger than it ever has been. The dollar is super strong, which means it's going to be inexpensive for us to travel in Sweden, which is fairly unusual. Um, I just talked to somebody who returned from Spain and um, and repeatedly said it's so inexpensive there. Things are so inexpensive. And that was sort of not talking about the exchange rate to the euro, which um, they use in Spain. So I'm wondering, did you have any sense of the exchange rate, if the dollar is strong and what, what it felt like in terms of expensive, not expensive and that sort of thing? Yeah, I have a very particular perspective on that because I can read it from the United States and also from Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And for example, this is a this is very interesting because this is something that we should always uh, look at the country we're visiting. How is the currency? Is it considered strong or not uh, compared to, you know, which uh, where uh, which places and such. So compared to the United States, uh, the U.S. dollar is stronger, but compared to Brazil, the 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 dirham is stronger than has. So. Uh, and the cost of living, uh, Kim is one of our speakers. Uh, she talked about that. The cost of living in uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and especially Dubai, they are high. Uh, but depending on the region, because they, they have seven Emirates, the cost of living can be um, less expensive. From my perspective, living here in California, uh, I would say that it is less expensive than my cost of living here, living there in Dubai. I've, I, I met to a couple of friends who are um, living there for almost three years and they pay $3,000 for a huge apartment in front of the beach with a five meters balcony with this view to the, the palm, um, the palm tree, you know, and all the accessibility there. So I pay almost the same for something that is nothing compared to that. So you can see how much it is different. Oh, $3,000, is it expensive or not? It is depending on the, the situation you live. This is, you know, 
for 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 this couple, they were well, you know, employed and such, and this matched the uh, the way of life they were having. And compared to what you had in, the point is, he was paying that amount, but he was he was receiving a comparable and reasonable wage to have a very good condition of life. Uh, have access to everything he wanted, they wanted, and that they could even save money. So it all depends on your whole situation. So this is my perspective. It is a little less expensive than in California. I cannot speak for other regions in the US, probably the same with the situation that happens in the Emirates. But on average, it seems to be less expensive than here, but of course, more expensive than Brazil or other countries. Dr. Gabby, what are your perceptions about that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So we had a, um, we had several speakers come in and one of them, we had someone from the ministry come and speak to us. And so she had a very different perspective, but we also had a speaker um, who is an expat that lives in that currently lives in she lives in a different emirate but she's moving into dubai um and she she was talking about the cost of living and i remember sitting there thinking oh you haven't been to california in a while have you because what she was what she was um describing well might sound expensive to the average person in the united states um, we all know that California is an average. We're on the very tippy top of the high end. Um, not as high as New York, not as high as San Francisco. Well, San Francisco's in California, but you know, you know, regionally. Um, but we're we're if not second, we, I know we're not first, but if not second, we're third. We're like there. So when she was um talking about the cost of living in Dubai, it was almost like a disconnect. But it's a disconnect because I, I'm native to Southern California. I'm native to California in general. Um, I'm fully aware of my taxes. I'm fully aware of cost of living. Um, I know how much I pay um, for having year-round fresh produce, right? And having um, the climate we have and like all of those carry its own cost. And so when she was talking, it, it was, I wasn't, I wasn't phased at all. It was one of those things where she, where she was running down the cost of things. It was like, oh, sounds, it sounds like home. You know, it's not that much of a difference. But I can understand that there is, just like here, there's a disparity between California in the Midwest, you know, Montana versus California versus Maryland. Um, so to that end, I like Suelen says, it really depends in in. In Dubai, at least, it sounds like the cost of living is high, but compensation um, is commiserate with cost of living, as opposed to here in the U.S., where cost of living is high, but compensation is not commiserate with cost of living. Um, and in fact, you know, we had just last year that whole conversation happening with some of our major corporations saying, well, if you live in an area that has a lower cost of living, we're going to reduce your pay. And that was like, that makes no sense. Um, so it, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, the climate, I mean, if we talk about comparison, 
it, it was it wasn't too bad we were actually there during a very temperate time we were told that it was unseasonably cool it was warm but it was unseasonably cool for how warm it was or how warm it should be so it was like in the 90s right like mid to high 90s but it should have been about 105 to 110 so we were about 10 degrees off um there were a few a few things that really i mean for me the cultural component the cultural sensitivity piece um was really important um but the piece that left me in awe to be quite honest with you the piece that really um stuck with me was the level of advancement they've done in such a short period of time so the fact that this country didn't actually come into its own until the 60s right and when you look at the development that you see now um in 2022 um it's incredible uh the, the one of the biggest criticisms and and California is my lens so that's kind of my reference point one of the things that I kept on thinking about was how we're constantly in drought here in southern in California especially here in southern California we're constantly in drought constantly like I think in the last 10 years we had one year where we weren't in drought and that was when the world shut down right other than that we've been in drought and so one of the questions that we're constantly asked in California is, why don't we make you, we have the ocean, the ocean's right here. It's like next door. Why don't we start desalinating our water? And the response is always, it's too expensive. It's not cost-effective. It's not efficient. The technology didn't exist and on and on and on and on. And yet in Dubai, they have very little natural resources for water. Very little. And in fact, prior to um, the development of the country that we see now, water was very scarce. They, part of why they were nomadic is because they were searching out water. And yet you see now all the desalination plants that exist in the country. Um, you know, they have central air. And I don't mean central air like we do here, where if you're privileged and, and lucky enough to have a home or an apartment with central air then that's one thing no what i mean by central air is they have air conditioning plants that service the city um think of our water plants you know they have air conditioning plants and for me the contrast has been we in the summer here over and over i mean right now we're hearing all kinds of other things and i won't get into that but how so many of our seniors die in the summer because of heat. And so many of our seniors die and our homeless die in the winter because of cold. Even here in, the, here, even here in California, although we have such a huge homeless population for a lot of factors, but one of them is our climate. I mean, if you're gonna have to live out in the streets, our climate makes it tolerable, not acceptable, but tolerable. Um, but even that, right? People are freezing out in the streets. People are dying of heat stroke in the summer. And yet here's a country that just came into its own in the 60s and has centralized air conditioning for the city, 
has desalination plants, is, is involved in huge infrastructure um, projects in order to advance their development, in order to attract more people. Um, and I know that Suellen talked about this a little bit about the population and the fact that, you know, um, the country itself only houses 10 million people and of those 10 million, um, uh, and she didn't say this, I'm saying this, of those 10 million, about 15%, it, 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 it's, we got differing numbers. It's between 10 and 20%. Somewhere in there are native um, Emirati. Everyone else is, um, they're, and I don't want to say immigrants because it's not the same thing. They're expats from different countries that come and live there and work there. Um, and the reason I say that they're not immigrants is because there, there isn't a path for people that come into the country to, uh, for citizenship. So you can't, it doesn't matter how long you live in the country, it doesn't matter what business you have there, it doesn't matter why you're in the country, you're never going to be a citizen short of marrying into it. And only under certain circumstances will that actually result in citizenship. Um, and so it's, it's, there was a, there was a, a, a question that was asked during one of our meetings about, um, the indigenous populations and it was asked through the u.s lens of indigenous populations and i was sitting there thinking no you can't you can't compare the two populations there is no comparison between the indigenous populations of the uae and the indigenous populations in the u.s because the indigenous populations in the u.s were colonized right um our country was developed and grew and established on the backs of the indigenous populations. They were removed from their lands. Um, they were, well, we know our history. I'm not gonna delve into that, but it wasn't a positive experience. In the, in the United Emirates, it, it was a different experience. Yes, they were colonized and the British had a lot of influence early on, but once they became a country and they expelled um, the British from the country and they were actually left to self-govern, they actually took on a different approach. They took care of their own people. It wasn't about, you had the monarchy because you still have a monarchy there. Um, but it was about bettering the lives of the indigenous people, right? What ended up happening though was as trade expanded, as trade grew, that's when we started attracting, or they started attracting, sorry, um, the different uh, populations that came in and actually came to, to Dubai to work. And so one of the things, and I don't know, Swellen, if you noticed this, but we had um, another student who is of uh, Philippine descendancy and background, She's Filipino. And she kept on running into Filipino workers in the country and apparently there's a huge population because in the Philippines you can actually um you you can become an export commodity and I know that sounds horrible but that's essentially what it is um you sign up to go work in other countries and you work in the service industry whether it's in hotels housekeeping and and um 
and, you know, Amma, one day we can bring her and, and maybe talk to her about that. But um, so she kept on running into small groups of uh, Filipinos within the, the country. And, you know, she'd immediately, either they would start talking Tagalog to her, or she would start talking to them. And it was just like, it almost became this thing where she was on a mission to find um, other Filipinos and she was asking them questions and really she was engaging in discourse. But I think the country grew so fast and so big that they needed to import workers. Yeah. This so is... No, no, no. So, sorry, I just have a quick question about, um, and maybe it's not quick, so please, you know, we can talk about it later or whatever. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was curious. So why is there no path to citizenship? Was that, was that clarified? Um, it's one of their, it's one of their country's um, policies. They don't, because they want, and, and I don't know enough to okay. say this is an expertise you know from what we gathered it was it was the intent of the monarchy to take care of their own people first okay. yeah and uh, this is interesting because one thing that i wanted to add what uh, to what dr gab said before about protecting and valuing their own people the emirati the nationals uh they have some sort of privilege they are both inter inter interested in attracting capital from outside. They need this labor, but they want the country to provide for their own people as well. You know, so for example, the rentals. For the Emiratis, they pay like 40% or 50% of, of what uh, international uh, expatriates do. And this is, you know, they, they receive those benefits. And if you know the rules, what is the problem about that? And if you are an expatriate and you go there with, you know, enough compensation and the possibility to live in a good place and have a good life, why not? So this is kind of the mentality that I got, I got from that, not trying to put our unbelievers in our country there because we tend to look at it from a... Okay, it is inclusion exclusion policies. No, this is the rules of the game. And if you want to do that, it's literally up to you. And when it goes to the immigration process, Dr. Gab said, I I I I I used to have breakfast with Emma, and there was Filipinos as well in the breakfast serving us. And I learned after that Filipino is the fourth bigger population <laughs> citizenship there. So they really are there and they are working massively in the service. Uh, what else I would like to add to that? Oh, about the attraction, the, the, you know, the human capital attraction. One thing that caught my attention is, and then I started to study a little bit more, uh, for example, Indians and other nationalities, they went in the 2000 mainly. There was two big points that we can see this increase in population due to immigration. Uh, one in the 2000, the other in 2010, 2011, and then the increase is more steady after there from 2011 to today. 
uh, it increased from eight point something to uh, 10 something in all these 10 years. But before, imagine they were 10% of that <laughs> because it is the population of the Emirates. So they, they understand that they need other people to build the country. And they received a lot of, of this population to work in the construction and oil and all these industries. And it is, it's, it's something very impressive. Right now, and we had a conversation with uh, Fatima, uh, and uh, um, she was explaining us about some programs they have to invest in diversification. So right now, they are very focused in diversification, in um, things related to circular economy, innovation, technology, and such. They are very ambitious about their goals. And to accomplish that, they know that they need good people. So they are investing in education, but they are also investing in attracting people from outside because they want people to be there. So some of the things that I took some notes about their, you know, policies to do that, the compensation money, this is one thing. Infrastructure, they are building, you know, a structure that is suitable to these people they want to attract. Uh, access, uh, accessibility, they revealed the visa. So one thing that is very interesting to me is and this is, this is something that we don't have, uh, you don't have here in the United States. <laughs> For example, my visa student is for four years and that's it. Um, and uh, uh, they have, for example, a visa for retirement that goes up to 10 years. So it's a lot of time, you know, they, they kind of, uh, they, 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 uh, how could I say that they adapt their visa so they could bring more people if and if they are interested in this particular group what I could read from what they were saying is that they will facilitate and another thing that is interesting they have a ministry of happiness <laughs> so they don't only want these people to be there but they want them to be happy because if they are happy and satisfied with what they have so far they will continue to produce and it's for me is oh they are running the country like you run a business that you want to you know uh, be successful in the future, that they wanted to be profitable in the future when you think about diversification, innovation, attracting good people. And they are right. They don't want to attract the people that will not contribute to their business. Uh, if I can use this term here, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Dr. Gabby. This is my how I read the part of the situation as well. Well, you know what, I, I think it's so interesting because as you're talking about the citizenship and the fact that there's really not a path to it, this is something like, um, I, I know a lot of people who are Pakistani Indian that are living in Dubai and they're like, yeah, we're here working with actual UAE companies. And so once we were done with it, you know, even if we retire, we are told, okay, you're going to have to have the time to go back to your country because they don't allow people to live there. And it is because of the fact that, you know, they don't want to compromise their culture and like you were saying, they want to put people first. But one thing that I've noticed that I think is really interesting, and I don't know if anyone mentioned it over there, but they are actually now starting to act offer citizenship to foreigners. So they decided that, 
hey, we want to actually be inclusive for society. We do want to open it up to other expatriates. And so they are actually now providing a way for people to get citizenship. It just happened, I think, last year. And um, I think I was also reading, too, that they're... Um, they're also saying, even if you don't work for a UAE company, but you're working remotely and you want to move to Dubai, they're like, yeah, our doors are open. You can come in and you can, uh, you know, live here and everything. But the only thing is you need to have proof that you're getting 5000 or more per month and you need to have your passport for six months and all of that stuff. So I thought that's interesting because so many people that I know, like once they were done, they had to go back to their countries. They couldn't stay. So did they talk to you about that at all, about these new things that they're doing? So they talked about the new visa classification, but not citizenship. They, the mm-hmm. ones that we heard, it's kind of hard to have the citizenship itself. This is what I got, but I, I don't know if you have any different. Uh, this is new for me, for example. Oh, they are giving foreigners citizenships. Yeah. Um... It was my understanding from talking to the locals that citizenship is not an option unless you marry um, or you have a son. And even then your son, so you have to marry in an Emirati. Um, and if you're, and you, if you have a son, your son will be a citizen, but that doesn't guarantee that you'll be a citizen. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think the other pieces, as Americans, we have this perceived notion that the way we do it is best, right? Where there's always a path to citizenship should you wish to proceed. And even that isn't guaranteed. I mean, look at our immigration system. In the UAE, they're much more restrictive, intentionally so. So even when like Kim, who's been in the country for 20 years, she openly said that, citizenship wasn't 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 on the table nor was it expected because the country was pretty clear on their policy um so i uh i i think that the having to go like our um our tour guide was in of indian descent um he had been in the country for 20 years too and his whole family was there his children were born there um he had his his wife, his sister, his brother, his mother, um, which is a whole other part of this conversation. And they had been there. Um, he has no intention of leaving. He has a business there. So I, while citizenship, but he's of he's of Indian citizenship. He has an Indian passport. Um, and so I think the bigger issue, because they still have access to a lot of services. I think the bigger issue is economic, the economic services that um, natives have versus the expat population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also to add to that, uh, they, even though, for example, take the case of chemo or guide tours, the pros of getting the visa is they have very, you know, clear policies, but it's so easy to renovate and get your visa. You do everything there. Uh, and as long as you have proof that you are employed or you have resources, they will welcome you. you know, they don't want someone, they don't want, how could I say that? Because it's 
literally that. They don't have, for example, homeless, because if they see the situation is getting worse and this person will cause some kind of damage to the country and become a criminal or this, they avoid that in advance by, okay, if you cannot get a, a job here and you cannot, you know, um, have enough money to provide to yourself and to your family, then you can stay. This is basically the role of the, the, the game, you know, they are playing there. And they are facilitating things, even though they don't give a citizenship, they are facilitating things. Our guide told us that now they have an electronic ID and they don't even need the passport to go outside and come back to the, the country. And they use the facial recognitions and such. So there are some place they can go without any ID because, you know, the system is all the technology they use and the, 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 the procedures or the documents they made to make it easier for those expatriates uh, living there. So they, they, even though you don't have the citizenship, you have some, this is my reading, facilitation to live there. You can live there, you know, quite easily. Mm -hmm. no, Not saying that you have to or don't have it, it you know, it's <laughs> depend on anyone's situation. Of course, for example, I can totally understand why you have this huge immigration from India to there. When you get to India, you have, you know, like 60% of the population living in really poverty. If someone is, uh, you know, inviting you, hey, here we have job, we provide even your transportation because it is some of the things they did in the past, in the 2000s, bring here, we will, you know, allow you to have a job here, have you, you know, have better conditions of life. So you, you leave your country in which you don't have, you know, nothing, a job, or you don't have energy, you don't have pipeline water, and you go to a place in which you, where you were being provided to uh, the basic conditions of life, and you can have a better opportunity, why not? This is, you know, something that I, I consider they, they did that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like so when you were working for a company, you know, for example, I was working in South Brazil, I received a proposal to work to Sao Paulo, it's kind of similar, <laughs> if the situation is better, and I can learn and I can have more, why not? Mm -hmm. So those are really good um, points and really good, interesting things that you're seeing um, that you've both seen in Dubai, in Dubai, why am I saying Dubai, in Dubai, um, how is it there, like, as far as when you were there, I, I think, you know, here we deal with a lot of issues when it comes to gender and racism and things of that nature. Is this something that you noticed in Dubai differently? I mean, do they have this? I know I'm opening a can of worms here, but I'm really curious to know how it is, how they are over there, you know, I mean. So... So uh, let me, I'm going to jump in here and then Suelle and you can see the big smile on her face. Um, oddly <laughs> enough, so here's a huge lesson for me. Um, you can't go into another country and judge their practices and their processes by the lens you carry, right? So, and Suelle and I had a lot of these conversations, even with her being from Brazil and me being from the United States and just even that lens is different. Um, being Latinas and, and what that means here versus what that means for her. And so there's a lot of, a lot to unpack. 
Um, as it pertains to the UAE, one of the things, because we had a, a person from the actual ministry who happened to be a woman come in and, and speak. And whenever you tried to ask her these questions, um, she answered them and she non-answered them. And it wasn't because she wasn't wanting to criticize the country, but it was because of the approach. And it wasn't just her approach. If you talk to anyone that wasn't American that lived there, they had the same approach. And I wanna specify how different the American perspective is. Um, it's, it's based on the individualism versus collectivism. Um, so when she talked, she talked about the fact that, you know, they're not where they wanna be, but they're working on it. It was never her expressing negativity over the way women were treated in the country. Instead, it was always forward-facing. It was always visionary. It's we have a lot to go, but we can work, we can go to school, we can marry who we want. Um, it, and it, it was always about it being a choice. Now, would I be able to live in Dubai? Absolutely not. I'm contrarian, I have purple hair, I'm opinionated, not that the purple hair matters, but it says something. I'm opinionated. Um, I, I, you know, I like being able to speak my mind. I like, so I would never, well, I shouldn't say never. I wouldn't be one to say, I'm going to go live in Dubai because there is a disconnect in values for me. That's not to say that that is the case for the women that live in Dubai. Now, we have heard many a story about the royal family and the way women are treated within the royal family. Um, and, and we can't make assumptions about the entirety of the population of Dubai. So by our standards, is it stricter? Eh, absolutely. But the thing that got me thinking different was we were driving by the beach. And our tour guide was talking about the beach and how it's a beautiful beach and, you know, it's open to anybody and there's areas where you can pay and then there's areas that are free and how there was an area for just women and families. And so, of course, our American students, being American, wanted to know why the women had to be segregated. Our, drive, our tour guide didn't hear the question the way we intended it. It wasn't like, you know, why do the women have to, you know, the question is, why do women have to be segregated? Why do they have to be by themselves in their own space? His response was, well, you know, sometimes women don't feel comfortable bathing in front of men. Maybe they don't want to have, you know, they want to be able to wear their bathing suits and they want to be out in the water and they don't want to have to worry about men watching them. It had nothing to do with the men in, in enforcing this thing, it was about the way the women perceive themselves. And Fatma alluded to that as well. Um, we also got that, that same perception from other women that, that were in um, Dubai. And we got that when we were at the mosque as well, when you heard the stories, when you listen to what people were saying if you were able to put your own biases because we all have them you all have heard me say this multiple times we have biases we need to be aware of our personal biases 
Um, and as Americans, this idea of freedom, which if we really try to unpack the idea of freedom in the United States, um, is actually a misnomer, but we won't get into that on this particular podcast. Um, but we are so inclined to hang on to what our beliefs are as women here in the United States versus women in other places. And it could be that oppression feels different. Oppression looks different. Um, you know, when you look at uh, religious beliefs and how those manifest within that country versus our country, it's always great to compare and contrast. I caution this idea of trying to implement our Judeo-Christian values on a country that's governed by different, still Abrahamic, but different set of values. And, and so that's my two cents about the whole women component. Um, if you were to actually walk down the city, if you were to go into the malls, um, we were cautioned about how we dressed going over there. We were actually dressed conservatively compared to a whole bunch of other people there. I mean, we were covered up a lot more than a lot of people that were there. Now, were they there vacationing versus uh, living there? I, hard to tell because it's so diverse. Um, but yeah, Swellen. Yeah, I mean, you have good points. <laughs> when it comes to this matter, I learned not to judge. And that's, that's it. So Dubai is very liberal. So when we were in the malls, we had people, women, uh, uh, Western women, um, you know, going or coming from the gym with a top and, you know, those kind of uh, clothes that we use uh, in, in gym. Uh, and, you know, that's okay. That's totally okay. They accept. And the Emirates were walking there. Even the men's all over up. So this is the way they dress. Women and men, they cover all their bodies, you know. Even the men, uh, for example, we could see very clearly the Emirati because they were literally all cover up. So this is one thing. The other thing is, um, I think that in the past, when I started to travel abroad, I used to, yeah, I was to, you know, give much attention to uh, some people's opinion about the restriction against women, you know, in, 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 in the Middle East and, you know, this kind of, in, in, in Muslim or, you know, but after I started to realize that this is, connected to who they are and beliefs. And there is a reason why they do what they do. For example, I got to read, um, not completely, but most part of Al-Quran some years ago. And there is a whole chapter about women and it's amazing chapter. I got one version in Portuguese. And then I started to understand that these uh, mislead, um, impression we have that women are being undermined, it's not true because there is explicitly there, at least, you know, what I read, I got mine from Turkey <laughs> in one of those mosques. And I love that because there were, you know, a lot of things are much more about protection and loving and you have to love it. You know, most of the things that I, I read in Okran is about love. 
respect, not fight, not nothing like that. So what I, what I see is a culture that is relational, they, um, they value human, they value love, they value all, all these things, you know, but as all cultures, there are good and bad people. <laughs> there are people who, you know, kind of mislead what, they, what the beliefs are. It is the same in Catholic. We face it all the time. And if we look back at, you know, I'm a Catholic. I know that I am, and I am from a small city in Brazil. So you can imagine that in uh, my mom's house, her dad was who had all the power and not them. So not the woman. Uh, so different shapes, but similarities that are undeniable for me in my perspective. And another thing that why I say I don't judge is because if you talk to someone who is following that, they, it's exactly what Fatima said. Sometimes it's just their desire. I don't want to work. Even in, you know, in our Western, there are some women, they, they prefer not to work. There are some women, they prefer to work. It's up to them. Who am I to judge their option? Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's the same there. Uh, about the clothes, I don't like, I am a Catholic, but I don't like to show my body. I don't like to show any part of my body. So I don't, I don't use, you know, those short skirt. I don't use very big, uh, I don't like it. I don't feel comfortable. I feel, I feel vulnerable in a sense that I don't like to be. So this is my option. If they are, you know, if they feel comfortable using and cover up everything, why not? You know, it's, it's for me, it's more, uh, a respect, uh, um, an act of respect and not judgment because it's just a matter of a choice. Uh, freedom is different for each one of us. If we ask here, for example, what is the concept of freedom for me? Or what is the concept of freedom for uh, Dr. Brahmi or for you, Asia, or for Dr. Gabby? You all will have different definitions of it for yourself. So it's the same there. Maybe they are not feeling oppressed. So instead of judging, let's just just observe and live <laughs> with the differences. <laughs> this is my two cents about that, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think the other component to consider that is um, this idea of a, a collectivist society versus individualistic society. Um, according to the GLOBE studies, if you, if you look, the vast majority of countries tend to be collectivist societies. Um, this is also why, while we were there, our tour guide, um, he was joking at one point. He's like, yeah, he's like, just like our old people, you know, we don't have homes for them or something to that effect. And so it, it was interesting that he mentioned that. And then we actually got into an actual conversation with him that, it, that this idea of, uh, familial connection right so it there whereas here we're starting to see the multi-generational homes out of necessity there it's actually an expectation so multi-generational homes is a norm you don't you know when your parents are old and 
they need care. You don't send them off to a home. You don't find somebody else, you know, to house them or they stay with you. They're your responsibility. You might need additional help. You might need nursing services and things like that, that you bring into the home, but you never send your parents out. Um, the other thing he said is, you know, even like his brother, who's not married, his brother still lives with him and it's his responsibility to care for his family. And in caring for his family, he's actually blessed. There's blessing in that. And so he wanted, it, it was, it was interesting to have that, that conversation from a religious perspective. Um, and just to understand this idea of collectivism and doing what's best for the greater good versus this individualistic approach. I mean, we saw here in the States, as far as the vaccinations, you know, we have a small group, you know, a small population in the United States that's adamant about not getting vaccinated because of personal freedoms. And, um, and there's this worrying debate, you know, where you have this idea of personal freedom against vaccination, but at the same time, we want to get rid of uh, Roe v. Wade, right? And, you know, personal choice is only personal choice when it comes to certain things and freedom is subjective. And so I think that was, that was really interesting overall. I, I'll share one last amusing thing from, from my early life that, um, you know, Suellen, you mentioned, um, freedom and what is freedom and, and all that, you know, the perception when I've immigrated here to the U S I was 10, 10 years old. And we um, landed in Indianapolis. And one of the first questions I was asked um, was by a, another little girl. Um, mo most of the people there didn't even know where or what Sweden was um, at that time. This was 1970. So it was very different and communism was the big scary kind of thing, um, at least in the Midwest, among many, among many people. I don't want to do a sweeping generalization, but I was asked by this little girl, is Sweden a free country? I didn't even know what she was talking about. I never even heard the expression about freedom or what. So it's just so interesting, you know, the conversations that families have and the things that you know, how the perspectives we have um, and we are led to understand even as small children and, you know, what we question and what we know about the world. So I just have so loved listening to you to talk about, about this trip and your experiences and um, your perspectives. And it's just so, so fascinating. So thank you for this beautiful description and analysis of your, your trip and your experiences. So fun. Well, and hopefully we can find someone that, that went to the Egypt trip and we can have them come on and we can hear okay. about the Egypt trip yeah. from the same, and maybe, you know, Belize and yeah. Costa Rica. And so, yeah. I know, uh, Suellen is hoping that we can get down to Brazil at some point. So, you know, you yeah. never know. That would yeah. be, I want to go, I want to go. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. And um, I think I know a few people that went to the Egypt trip, so we can definitely work something out. And having someone come on and talk about that in one of our next few episodes, because I'm looking at some pictures from Egypt and oh my God, it looks so amazing. The pyramids, all the, yeah. All the things. yeah. yeah. And we can have Dr. Majidi come in as the leading faculty and have his perspective as well with the students. So absolutely. So fun. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they all went, oh, okay. So um, amazing. So 
any like any last minute thoughts about you know your experiences anything that you want to give to us that we can take away like lessons learned from this trip honestly i think the biggest the biggest piece especially as as these trips go um you can't you can't expect to be on these trips using your american lens using american expectations um i think it's critical to truly try to understand these different countries these different experiences these different conversations from the lens of the person having them as opposed to the lens of the person being there so for example um and I received a lot of feedback after the trip from students that just shared what a great experience they had and how transformative it was. And it's, for me, it's in that conversation about the transformation. Um, students came back saying things like the trip had changed their perception of the Middle East. Um, the, trip had per uh, the trip had changed their perspective about Muslim countries the trip had changed their perspective in general, just of, of traveling the world and how they saw it. So for me to hear those things, I mean, look, I worked the whole trip. This wasn't a trip that for, this wasn't a trip for me. I learned a lot, but this wasn't a trip for me. I was working the whole time. But hearing that feedback, getting to engage, um, and you all know me, you know I keep my circle small. Um, and so I traveled, there were people on the trip that were part of that small circle that I engage with. Um, but also hearing the stories, hearing the aha moments, um, it, it was a really fascinating experience. And don't get me wrong, I'm still me. So when I came back, I had a conversation with Dr. Majidi about, hey, I have... Um, I have modifications, recommendations, and suggestions about these trips moving forward. But overall, I mean, it's quite the experience. It's quite the experience. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Dr. Gabby. What I would add from a student perspective or someone working in organizations, in private organizations as consultant and also in positions, in, in leadership positions in, in private companies, is that this kind of experience is really good to start to know better yourself and start to know better the others and, uh, you know, kind of expand your social awareness. This is, this is so important. It's not the same reading in a book that they do this kind of thing. It's totally different when, when you get to connect to people and talk to them and really listen actively to them. Uh, another thing that I would add to that, and that is an important, important um, um, characteristics that is missing in leadership and we should be, you know, looking to build that is we like to be in our comfort zone. But what we need to do in order to improve, it's not that we needed to miss ourselves, our background. We needed to build them, you know, layers over and over this, you know, our nationality, our culture and such. Uh, so the bigger thing is 
developing this ability to be uh, comfortable in being uncomfortable situations, you know? Uh, and being comfortable in being uncomfortable situation means you have to listen, you have to respect, you have to not to try to change, but understand and see how it can add to yourself and to the community you're involved in. So this is a critical component that this trip helped, not only me, but I think from the feedbacks I also have heard, um, it helped them to build this ability as well. Amazing, amazing. I love hearing about all of your experiences today and just everything that you, you brought back from this trip. Um, it was definitely a valuable trip. And uh, I know we're gonna hear from others about other trips that are gonna be, that are already happening right now. Uh, with that said, thank you everybody for listening in to the Elevating Voices and Leadership podcast. We will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.